Binge Heads. It's time to head back to the rocket ship forest because the Binge Mode Weekly Archive, as well as our complete Binge Mode Game of Thrones, Binge Mode Harry Potter, and Binge Mode Star Wars seasons are now available to listen to for free exclusively on Spotify. Today's episode of Binge Mode Weekly on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and Los Angeles. And they're launching initiatives across America to deliver hot meals to hospitals and clinics fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants in business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us. And you can help keep your local restaurants active. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate. We're trying to raise 250000 and if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen, and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com slash WCK. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. Oh, boy, does it. Folks, in this episode, we will talk about a giant named Fard who has testicles the size of a building covered in gross cheese. There's uh, numerous scenes of sex, robot orgies. There is vulgarity, nudity, inadvertent defecation. If that's not your thing, the Ringer NFL show has everything you need for the NFL draft. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why Sweet Boy and Lion Cat are shooting darts and admonishments, please proceed <laughs> with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. It's not a traffic jam, Marco. No, but you and I have survived worse scrapes together, and this time, we have something else on our side. We have hope. Do you think I'm calling my daughter that? I want a divorce. My name is Hazel. Seriously? Too corny? I started out as an idea, but I ended up something more. Not much more, to be honest. It's not like I grow up to become some great war hero or any sort of all-important savior. Well, I do like something with an H. We're getting close. It's on the tip of my tongue. Ugh, my breath is atrocious. But thanks to these two, at least I get to grow old. Not everybody does. Welcome to Binge Mode Weekly, yes. proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Oh. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com. Oh. It's a great, 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 great website. It's, it's great. Really, it's great. Joining me today, now that he's finished binding his soul to a living native of Cleve. That's right. It's Ringer Senior Creative, your favorite babysitter. Jason Concepcion. Mal, take me with you. <laughs> take me to Binge Mode, where we're back with another special quarantine edition of Binge Mode Weekly, whereas we social distance amid the coronavirus crisis. We'll be coming to you once a week to cover a series of rotating topics, revisiting some past favorites, and diving into some new stories as well, while also getting to work on the next full Binge Mode project. Please 
Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate and review us. Give us the five-star ratings or farge this gross balls will throw you into the time suck. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans and stands, and which is an excellent place to share your nightmares about the stock. If you're looking to spice up your work-from-home wardrobe and zoom into your chat with Brio Talent Agency, please head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch. Last time on the return of Binge Mode Weekly, we popped into the visualization chamber to discuss free will and determinism in devs. And today, we're diving deep. That's big deep. (laughs) (laughs) Deep. Wow, can we go back and re-edit the devs pod to put that's big deep in there instead? (laughs) Into Saga, the absolutely outstanding Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples epic space opera comic from Image Comics. As always, spoiler warning, while today's primary focus is going to be Saga Book One, a.k.a. Volumes 1 through 3, a.k.a. Issues or Chapters 1 through 18, we will be taking the entire 54-issue run to date into account as we chat. We're going to talk about things that happen at the very, very end, even though we're mostly focusing on the first 18 issues. So be prepared for that. Major spoilers. Major. 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 <laughs> Devastating and major. I, I cannot stress it enough. It's major spoilers. Major. So get ready to ride the rocket ship. Because it's time to head to Quietus. Mal, no matter how we are eventually raised, all of our stories begin the exact same way. They all end the same way, too. So let's offer up a brief refresher on how Saga actually begins in its first 18 issues by making the trek to the rocket ship forest. For as long as anyone can remember, the planet Landfall and its moon wreath have been at war. The two could scarcely be more different. Landfall's people have wings. The planet is an advanced technological powerhouse. Wreath's population have horns, wield an ancient magic, and the two armies have waged countless battles on each other's territories. But neither could destroy the other without risking the destruction of their own home world. And so in recent decades, the conflict has evolved into a devastating proxy war, with numerous civilizations forced to pick a side. On the planet Cleave, Alana, a runaway landfallian soldier, has just given birth to a daughter, Hazel, with the help of her husband, Marco, an escaped wreath prisoner of war. A mm. contingent of landfall soldiers led by a member of the robot royal family arrives to arrest them. Seconds later, a squad of wreath soldiers magically appears. The two sides fire at once and cut each other to pieces. Marco and Alana and their new baby escape and head for the rocket ship forest. Marco and Alana's relationship is a threat to both landfall and wreath, and they are desperate to capture the dissidents keep the whole thing a secret. That's right. No one need know. They're not out there on Instagram posting their selfies, you know? The superpowers independently hire two very different and very dangerous individuals to pursue the couple. Prince Robot IV of the Robot Kingdom and the humanoid freelancer, the Will. And most importantly of all, the Will's sidekick, 
lion cat. Oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful beast. Just incredible stuff. But the Will is not the only freelancer on the case. That's right. The stalk, the Will's ex, and Zach Cram's one and only. I think she's cute. Which of her eight eyes is your favorite to gaze into? No, no, all of them. I take it all together. <laughs> part arachnid, part humanoid. All deadly. Look at the glands on her. <laughs> Hard not to, my friend. Her brief is to kill the couple and return the child to wreath for study. Marco and Alana are making their way through a forest populated by the spirits of native Clevians who were killed in the war when the stalk finds them. The freelancer grievously wounds Marco with her gross tongue, but flees before she can finish the job. Isabel, a ghost who is killed by an anonymous landmine, makes a deal with Alana. She will lead her to snow, a necessary ingredient for a healing spell, if Alana will allow her to bond with Hazel so that Isabel can leave Cleve, effectively becoming the child's undead babysitter who can only appear at night. So dope. So dope. Also, now every time I hear lead them to snow, I think we're going to get a saga Game of Thrones crossover, even though saga is inherently a Game of Thrones, Star Wars, Romeo and Juliet crossover. Prince Robot the Fourth's investigation leads him to a book by the author D. Oswald Heist, one of the newest patron saints of bitch mode. A Nighttime Smoke is Alana's favorite book. She couldn't stop talking about it. You got to read this. You got to read it. (laughs) I would love to listen to Alana's A Nighttime Smoke podcast, by the way. That would be actually really fun. That would be really fun. (laughs) Perhaps four things. The couple will try to contact the author. You know, in the pre-DM age, you had to actually go to Quietus. That's right. Whatever the case. Robot is in a rush. He has a child on the way. And his father, the king, decreed that he may not return home until the mission is complete. This despite Robot just having returned from two years out at war. It's very unfair, Jason. It is Prince uh, Robot quite unfair. Soon crosses paths with the stock. Thinking that she means to shoot him, he instantly kills her. Tough look for our guy. Prince Robot the Fourth. Extremely hair trigger on the prince. Bells for the stalk? Is it too early? Let's do some sort of like creepy spider clicking pincer sound for the stalk. The will is getting hard just thinking about that. Marco, now healed, Alana, Hazel, and Isabel are soaring into space in a rocket ship Made of wood. It's a, it's a tree, basically, when two figures magically teleport into the craft. Marco's parents, Clara and Barr. In the confusion, thinking her son is a prisoner, Clara fires off a spell, which hits Isabel, and the ghost girl disappears. You know that Saga is a rich and nuanced text because rocket ship made of wood is not just innuendo for an erection. That's right. Marco and Clara head off to find Isabel, who Clara banished to the nearest planetary body. On the ship, Barr breaks free of the rocket ship's defensive vines by casting a spell powered by a secret. I love this. I love this. This is shivers. I love this stuff. He only has one month to live, and he has told no one, including his wife. He puts Alana gently to sleep with a spell, 
and then lovingly cradles his granddaughter. It's beautiful. While asleep, Alana dreams of how she and Marco met. She was one of his guards in a landfall prisoner of war camp, where all she did was basically read heist and not do her job. (laughs) Their meet cute culminates with Alana cracking Marco across the head with the butt of her rifle. Marco and Clara manage to rescue Isabel off the planet, which, by the way, is actually a giant egg that hatches a time suck, a giant fetus-shaped creature that's kind of like a black hole. And shouts to Fard, whose gross balls feature quite prominently in this scene. Meanwhile, another hunter has joined the pursuit for the galaxy's most wanted couple. Gwendolyn, Marco's former fiance. Tough look for our guy. Is Gwendolyn? Incredible moment. (laughs) She joins forces with the Will and his sidekick Lion Cat and a young girl, Sophie, who the Will has rescued from the brothel planet Sextillion. Sophie? is from Fang, a comet world whose inhabitants are sometimes able to communicate with magical objects. And Gwendolyn is wearing a translator necklace. Sophie can hear the call of its matching rings, which Marco, who <laughs> not I a love. Great, not a great look for my guy. Sweet guy. Sweet handsome, guy. Handsome. Gifted yes, in the carnal arts. Really is. Don't give your former... Beyonce's engagement rings. You can't do that. (laughs) To your new wife. It's just a note. Just in his slight defense, he was a prisoner of war, like shopping, not really an option. Still, you can't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) And yet, do that. They did. And Alana and Marco are now wearing those as wedding rings and translator rings, allowing them to communicate. Alana speaks language. Marco speaks blue. Sophie leads Gwendolyn the Will, Lion Cat, and herself to the area of space near the soon-to-hatch time suck. Gwen, in her haste, She's launches a missile at the rocketry. <laughs> but she only manages to damage the Will's ship. That's like the saga space opera version of throwing a drink in your ex's <laughs> face. Yes. Hastily shooting a heart-seeking <laughs> missile at them. Very nearly... Killing Lion Cat, who was shot out into the vacuum of space in one of the most terrifying moments <laughs> it was, in book it, one. It's very tough. Protect I was thinking, Lion Cat at all costs. I was thinking about you while reading that moment and thinking, man, this is a tough couple of pages for Mal. Good Lord. Marco hurls one of his parents' crash helmets, magical armor which can be used to travel, into the engine of the ship, giving the tree the kick it needs to escape the pull of the time suck. Bar casts a spell to hold the hull of the ship together, but the exertion exacerbates his illness, and he dies looking into his granddaughter's eyes. Bells for Bar. Bells for Bar, a sweet man. Sweet man. Maybe like little baby coos for Bar. <laughs> Certainly in his later years, a very sweet Mellowed. Man. Mellowed out, yeah, you know? He really did. His horns are just remarkable. Yeah. Beautiful. Great stuff. Great stuff. Prince Robot. Meanwhile, arrives on Quietus, the planet where Dio Heist lives. And boy, is he living. Lives and drinks and pisses himself. Yeah. A friendly and absolute darling gumdrop of a seal named Goose. And let me just say this right now. Protect Goose. If anything happens to Goose, I will flip the fuck out. I will commit a crime. (laughs) 
Like Tony on Survivor saying extortion seems fun and lusting after the idea of breaking someone's kneecaps. (laughs) Jason and I will (laughs) unleash a reign of terror on anyone who dares to harm a hair on Goose's head. I seen in the mafia movies, you know, like extortion and they do like extortion. They break the guy's kneecaps, you know, but I never seen anything like this. It would happen to me. Wow. Incredible Tony accent <laughs> work you. here. Amazing stuff. Goose points four to a lighthouse. Heist home. Right now, I just binged all of Outer Banks on Netflix. I don't know about anybody else. And now when I, when I hear lighthouse, I just instantly think, what's John B. up to? But that's for another <laughs> podcast. Okay. <laughs> You can tell it's quarantine because we just got through half a sentence and managed to incorporate both Survivor and Outer Banks. Good Lord. The look of dismay on Isaac's face. I might do this with my shirt off. (laughs) Robot interrogates Heist about the fugitive's whereabouts, eventually shooting the author in the leg. The author, a famed pacifist. Unbelievable shit. Fucking finish me off already, tough guy, I says. It'll only boost my sales. That's amazing. Remarkable work from Heist, who does not crack. Meanwhile, in one of the truly great heart-pumping twists and reveals in the first 18 issues, we learn that the fugitives are not on their way. They've already been Heist's guests for an entire week. And it's been a absolutely wonderful week. Heist realized when the family arrived that Marco and Alana's relationship means that they read a nighttime smoke and understood its underlying message. He invites them in. Heist is in the middle of plotting his next book, The Opposite of War. Marco and Alana nerd out over meeting their hero. Meanwhile, Heist and Clara are strangely, but quite charmingly hitting it off. It's great stuff. Great stuff from them. And as our timelines come together here, Prince Robot shows up. After four shoots heist, Clara can take no more. She charges down to help. And a mad fight breaks out. Clara's injured. Prince is seriously wounded, knocked offline. And just then, Gwendolyn, wearing her athleisure wear, ready to go, kicks in the door, followed by Lion Cat. The will is out of commission because Sophie inadvertently high on local foodstuffs called heroin. It happens. Stabs the will in the neck. It happens. Yikes. When Heist draws down on Gwendolyn, she kills him with the will's retractable lance. Awful. Isaac, give us those OG bells for Heist, but also... Give us the soothing, inspiring sound of his pen scratching away at the parchment. Give us the gentle, yet powerful tickle of the keyboard keys. Give us the sounds of fucking the opposite board. No, don't do that. This is a, there are limits even for binge mode. <laughs> Gwendolyn races to the top of the lighthouse where Marco and Alana are. Marco pushes his wife off the top of the lighthouse to save her and Hazel, from Gwendolyn's wrath. But Alana, using her wings, which she thought up until that moment were purely vestigial, flies in the air and shoots Gwendolyn with the heartbreaker. The family escapes the planet. When we turn the page, Hazel has grown. She takes a step, and so do we, onto issue 19. 
Ah, but first, let's talk about issues one through 18. Jason? Yes. Ideas are fragile things. Most don't live long outside of the ether from which they were pulled, kicking and screaming. That's why people create someone else. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. Yeah. So let's head for a nighttime smoke. The defining theme of this episode is family ties. Let's first talk about the family ties that are the frame of this entire story, the tie between Landfall and Wreath. Saga is a story about relationships. It's a story about how relationships work, what makes them work, what makes them go bad, all the different ways that they either work or fall apart and all the shades in Mm -hmm. between. On one level, Landfall and Wreath are a metaphor for the Cold War, two superpowers with different cultures and economic systems using smaller nations like chess pieces. But it's also a meditation on toxic relationships. This quarrel between the two has been going on for so long that no one remembers a time when the two weren't fighting. Right. Both feel a deep sense of injustice at the way the other has waged war against it. Whenever a side tries to address a grievance, you saw it when Heist and Clara argued, happens numerous times throughout the book, they're met with an equally heartfelt grievance from the other side, often about this very same event. Or an event that, in the minds of the responder, caused the event that was originally being talked about. When Heist tells the fugitives that the first of his many wives, a street musician, not a soldier, was killed at the Battle of Cartwright, Clara shoots back, quote, you people should never have agreed to fight for those coalition butchers. It's never, no one can ever say, well, that's terrible that happened to you. I'm sorry. It's always, well, well, your people shouldn't have done this. Well, then your people shouldn't have done this. And I'm sadly sure that many have experienced having conversations like this in real life that devolve into an endless cycle of whataboutism as the original topic that was brought up gets lost in the shuffle of pent-up feelings. Both sides have won battles and lost battles. Both sides have committed atrocities and any step toward healing inevitably gets mired in this kind of like who hurt who first one-upsmanship. The rest of the galaxy is like members of an extended dysfunctional family forced to take sides in this very, very toxic argument that ultimately isn't theirs. Like real-life toxic relationships, conflict is the only language Landfall and Wreath understand anymore. The two can't break up and they can't make up. They're literally just trapped in each other's orbit. There's no way to win. And so the only thing either side can really figure out to do while the fighting continues is figure out a way to ascribe blame to the other. It's the other's fault. And yet neither side will accept responsibility for anything. No wonder that Hazel, her existence is so threatening to both sides. Her existence, Marco and Alana's relationship, both of those things contradict the narratives of Landfall and Wreath by showing people in the galaxy that there's another radical path out of this conflict. Love, or to be less corny and quote heist, the opposite of war is fucking, or to put it another way, to just stop doing it. Brian K. Vaughn said in 2012, Quote, I really wanted to write a story about non-combatants. All these stories are about people having to destroy the empire. I just want to write some people who just want it out. Ah, the empire. One of the many, many, many ways in which Star Wars 
influences yes, many, the story, both through homage and divergence. Let's get to some of the combatants turned non-combatants. Let's start with the nuclear family, the heart of this story, Marco and Alana and their child, Hazel. Over the course of Saga's run, 54 issues to this point. To date. Brian K. Vaughn has said that it will be 108 in its totality, so we are at the exact halfway point now during this prolonged hiatus, the last yeah. issue published in 2018. We'll be back soon, we hope. But over the course of Saga's run to date, we meet numerous characters who forge bonds that challenge the notion of division by necessity. No relationship in the entire story melts away the veneer encasing those expectations more forcefully and subversively and effectively than Marco and Alana's. It is no accident that this story centers on their child, the manifestation of that love, a living, breathing, horned and winged reminder that prejudice and ingrained hate are not impenetrable barriers if you're just willing to take out the grappling hook and try, try to scale to the top of the battlement for a new point of view. Hazel represents a new beginning. And Vaughn has spoken many times about the importance of that choice in the to-be-continued feature at the end of the book one collection where he and Fiona Staples really amazingly explore their creative partnership and how they come together, the words, the Mm. plot, the illustration, all of it to make this magical thing. Vaughn writes, quote, from our first arc, we knew we wanted to explore the (laughs) anti-honeymoon, that terrifying, challenging, ultimately rewarding period right after a couple's first child is born or the period right after any kind of creators release a new work into the world. Many stories, the quote continues, end with the formation of a romantic couple or perhaps the happy arrival of their baby. But that's where we wanted our story to begin. The anti-honeymoon, few phrases better capture not only this position where we find Marco and Alana in this place where suddenly the hierarchy of their relationship is suddenly changed. Now there's this thing that for both of them is the most important thing in their lives when previously it was each other. But the general Mm -hmm. spirit and tenor of this tale, you typically don't get to the honeymoon phase without real love, real chemistry. But real life doesn't resemble bottomless pina coladas and endless sex on the beach, which is very regrettable, although Marco and Alana's sex life is is quite healthy. (laughs) They mix it they up. They keep it fresh. Alana grabbing a hold of those horns like the handles <laughs> of a motorcycle. Beautiful. Really Woo! handy items. <laughs> Love Like Life is messy. It is difficult. It makes you feel like shit as often as it makes you feel great. True. It is the anti, in other words, to so much of what people expect. But yes. that's also what's great and worthwhile and transformative. Vaughn has said he imagined this universe while growing up but that he finally began working on it when his wife was pregnant with their second child. Hazel and Saga were born in concert with Vaughn's real-life child. It reminds us of the dedication in Half-Blood Prince. Quote, to Mackenzie, my beautiful daughter, I dedicate her ink and paper twin. There is a real ink and paper twin element to Saga. The way that Vaughn and Sable speak about their co-creation can't help but mirror a parental approach, an investment in this topic and their lifeblood of a different sort. And surely this uh, prolonged hiatus is a reflection of how deeply they care about getting this right. 
Absolutely. Quote, I realized that making comics and making babies were kind of the same thing, Vaughn said in 2012 <laughs> at the book launch, according to Boris Kitt's Hollywood Reporter recap of the evening, which, fun fact, featured a conversation with Damon Lindelof, who Vaughn worked with as a writer on, you guessed it, folks, Lost. Amazing. Quote, and if I could combine the two, it would be less boring if I set it in a crazy sci-fi fantasy universe and not just have anecdotes about diaper bags. Though there are plenty of moments where Hazel says, I just shit myself. So we yes. keep that too, importantly. Yeah. Children, of course, bring first. And Hazel's no exception. Vaughn's first use of narration in his work comes from mm-hmm. Hazel in Saga. In a 2012 interview with Comics Alliance, Vaughn said that he found the inspiration for that narration and the way that it would be presented on the page is this handwritten text overlaying images from reading to his actual yeah. children. <laughs> Quote, I wanted to push myself to try something new with Saga. I've been reading a sickening amount of children's books recently, and I noticed how much my kids love whenever the text sort of playfully interacts with the images. You could just hear Heist coming in now and talking about <laughs> illustrating yeah. children's books, right? Yeah. The quote continues here, rather than being cordoned off in a caption box or whatever, felt like it might be a cool device to steal for Saga, particularly because of the unique relationship our narrator has to the events she's commenting on. Designer Stephen Finch does amazing work with all of our dialogue, but the narration is the one thing Fiona letters herself. And I just love how organic it feels. That's such an incredible detail. And again, really cements how elemental Fiona Staples is to this and how the it's nature so of their partnership is to this. The, the Hazel's narration is core to the way we understand the story and the nature of what is unfolding and when and how and why. And to know that she is lettering that by hand instead of someone else typing it out just feels so fucking right. I love that as well. And there's, you know, there's an element of the kind of like cross currents of different themes and different approaches and different textures within the art mm-hmm. creates this really kind of vibrant effect. You know, her drawings, her illustrations are incredible. Like Amazing. unbelievable. Yeah. Real vitality. There's like a sexiness and a just a wonderful, like really colorful palette that's really, really polished and beautiful. But then the narration is this kind of DIY hand lettered mm-hmm. thing that it evokes like a diary kind of feel that is really cool. And that kind of like mishmash of different thematic textures is all throughout this tale. On the one hand, it's funny. On the one hand, it's heartbreaking. And then it's serious and it's about space, but it's about earth and love and your feet just like flat on the ground. But then it's about imagining, exploring the universe. It's like all these things at once. It's really great. Such a great point. The way the narration is styled really does reflect that journey through space and through life, this perpetual essence of self-discovery, this almost like confessional aspect to how that is being delivered to us. And it is fitting that the narration has this unique origin from the creator's perspective because it also has a really unique impact on the story that we are then consuming. You know, it weaves us in and out of the past, the present, and crucially, of course, the future to really build and heighten that tension, toy with our awareness, give us these kernels of expectation while still keeping us totally anchored in the present moment in time. It's a really delicate balancing act that they pull off masterfully. Every line of narration, whenever Hazel's voice comes in, no matter who we're with, it reminds us that we're going to get attached to a lot of these other people. We're going to come to loathe a lot of these other people, but it's her story. At the essence, it is her. She is the central force. Her experience, her knowledge, her emotional response, that is going to be 
the guide for us. The story's opening instantly establishes Marco and Alana's level of intimacy. Boy, does it. Alana is giving birth and she's screaming, am I shitting? It feels like I'm (laughs) shitting. Quite an opening. (laughs) It's a Romeo and Juliet style love that has given birth to something new. Quote, this is how an idea becomes real, Hazel's narration reads. But ideas are fragile things. Marco and Alana are strong, certainly strong apart, certainly much stronger together, it seems, strong in the present, strong in the past. They've both been fighters and seen the Mm -hmm. cost of violence. Private first class Alana deployed to cleave after a reprimand for abject cowardice and foot soldier Marco prisoner number 9763572. Like to say the numbers, get them on the record. Just, you know, given Vaughn's lost background, you never know when the numbers might come into play. Uh, was taken into custody after surrendering and labeling himself, quote, a conscientious objector, something that's basically unheard of in this galaxy. They both learned firsthand the way forward is actually together, not across battle lines. And after 12 hours together in a detention center on Cleve, they make a run for it, spawning a hunt through the galaxy's many wonders and horrors that's extended 54 issues thus far and counting. As Hazel says, quote, most people don't live long outside of the ether from which they were pulled kicking and screaming. That's why people create with someone else. Oh, I love that. Hazel has the horns of someone from Wreath and the wings of a Landfallian. Marco, we learned, made a vow to sheath his sword, to leave acts of war behind so that he can love and nurture his new child. He's very, very focused on this. I'm not continuing to traffic in violence. And from the moment Hazel is born, that pledge is put to the test, literally from the moment. And it will be until the final moments of issue 54. Extreme spoiler. If you have not finished all the issues that are available. Yeah. You have been warned. Stop now. I'm warning you for the last time. Marco's pacifism and decision to put down his weapons rather than kill the will leads to Marco's own demise, tragically. The madness of mercy, as Ned Stark once told Varys. When Wreath forces arrive to challenge the coalition forces that find Marco and Alana in the minutes after Hazel's birth, does Marco express joy at the sight of his people? Does Alana express joy at the sight of hers? No, they're both like, uh, well, this is it. We're finished. And they huddle together, embracing each other, their baby between them. And Marco says, simply, <sighs> my family. <sighs> and they prepare to die. They've chosen each other, and choosing each other means, definitionally, in their war-torn galaxy, choosing to leave everyone and everything else behind. The entire organizing principle of this entire galaxy they are choosing to opt out of. And in a symbolically apt opening note, the two warring factions just tear each other to bits. Absolutely annihilate each other in a second. As our new family huddles up, protecting each other, a new stout nucleus born of everyone else's doom with that really chilling foreshadowing of Alana's wing getting nicked in that moment. definitely. Marco and Alana's union is so inconceivable to most of the galaxy that when Gail, fucking Gail... Agent Gail, why don't you put down the sweatbands and fucking do an honest day's work once in your (laughs) life, Gail? (laughs) strutting about in his sweaty underwear while trying to intimidate Upshur and Doff was quite a move. When he first tells Prince Robot IV about it, IV says, 
love child. Surely he forced himself on her. They can't conceptualize of another way that this could have come to be. We're mere pages into the story, and all we've seen so far is absolutely unbridled love and devotion between Marco and Alana for each other and for Hazel. And the contrast between the certainty, the reality of their love for each other, and the disdain and disbelief that the bulk of those who seek to thwart them feel is... It's massive. As massive as fard, saggy testicles, Jason. (laughs) A good fucking fard, man. The reminders that war tears lives apart are unending. Not only at the beginning here, but throughout. You know, the gun that Alana carries. Think about what it's called. It's called Heartbreaker. This poetic little nod. And there are tons of examples of things like this throughout the story. of The impact of inflicting pain on someone else. It doesn't matter that Alana notes it's not lethal. You're still inflicting violence and agony on someone else. It just makes you really, really sad when it hits you. (laughs) And you got to leave time to recharge, you know? Yeah. Upon hiring the will, Vez says that Marco chose, quote, to betray the narrative. And this is pinpoint perfect phrasing. Marco went off book. He violated the story that they all not just like to tell, but need to tell each other in order to keep this insanity going. But Reith doesn't want to kill Hazel. Vez wants her alive. They don't just want to eliminate Hazel. They want to control her, own her, make her work for this cause. And Marco and Alana, that's it. Doesn't matter what's happened to them. They can die. And the stalk nearly manages it when she tracks them down in the endless woods on Cleve and pierces Marco through the collarbone with her disgusting, pointy, gross tongue. Isabel, more on her soon, and who could not love her, and Alana managed to save him before he dies, and the time frame is essential when thinking about what might await in issue 55 when Saga finally returns from hiatus. Quote, then I'll find him a resurrection spell, Alana says, of the prospect of losing her husband. There's no such thing, Isabel says. Trust me, dead is dead, and it blows. <laughs> uh, Real no spell can awaken the dead Dumbledore energy in that moment. So. Alana yeah. clearly doesn't trust Isabel at first or want to trust anyone other than Marco. And it's really interesting to consider, too, at this point in time. Marco and Alana, they love each other deeply. That's clear. They don't exactly know each other. Right. As surely some of the things Marco is going to say in his <laughs> unconsciousness will prove that. <laughs> But the worlds are aligned against the very idea of their union. So who and what in this world in which all these civilizations are taking sides in this huge galactic war can possibly be safe? But saving Marco is so important to her that she just blows ahead into the cave of secrets with a dead girl that she doesn't know. Just an incredible sequence. This is where I started to get so into the story. Oh, my God. Of course, sometimes life reminds you that you don't really need to know the people that you love to know that you love them. (laughs) Saga, dedicated as it is to studying human connection and the nature of what draws us to each other, explores this in great detail. Please tell Gwendolyn I loved her so much. This incredible moment. Marco says to his literal wife, As his wound tries to claim him, yeah, you're right. Isabel's face, she's like, "Uh uh-oh. I'm going to (laughs) just back up here, leave this to the two of you. Who the fuck is Gwendolyn? Alana replies hilariously. One of the many examples of how 
expertly they weave in this comedy yeah. and this levity into this, what is often a very bleak tale. If Marco could hide this from me, Alana asked Isabel, in a moment of real vulnerability from her, yeah. what else is he hiding? And that's the point you just made, Jason. Like, that fear, that actual yeah. fear that comes when you have to ask yourself, do I actually know this person that I've just decided to spend my life with? And if I don't, then what does that mean? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my child? Marco, of course, is not actually hiding an affair or a torch that he's still carrying for somebody else. He is hiding the painful lesson that many of us learn, as he will say to Alana after the snow heals him and he wakes up, I was becoming this completely new person. But she was frozen in place. Wow. You know, relationships are not just about lust or passion. Yep. This makes me think of Kat telling Rob, yeah. <laughs> they're stronger, they last longer when you build a relationship this way. You know, it is about finding someone who can actually move forward through life with you, who can take those steps in parallel in concert, or who can challenge you when you misstep or catch you before you fall. Sometimes, though, protecting the ones you love means being willing to step off course. When Landfallian soldiers finds Alana and Marco on Cleve, and Alana asks what choice they have other than running, Marco breaks his vow and unsheaths his sword. This last one, he says, we fight. Marco took a vow to renounce violence, but one vow now trumps all others for him, protecting his daughter and his wife, even if that means compromising a belief that he holds sacred. But he holds that pledge so dearly in part because he knows what violence does, not just to the world, but to him. Yeah. When the Landfallian soldiers attack Alana on the mountaintop, Marco's rage takes over. It's almost as though he enters a trance. So fully, in fact, that Alana has to shoot him with the heartbreaker mm-hmm. to snap him out of it. And she's like his, his inception totem, the anchor that reminds him where he is, the path that yeah. he's on. Quote, my reluctance to use force isn't ideological, he tells Alana. It's practical. Violence is stupid. Even as a last resort, it only ever begets more of the same. Conflict always has consequences. Always. He knows that the value that others place on physical might, though. When the rocket ship forest calls for a sacrifice in order to board the treehouse, Marco leaves his sword behind, even though it's powerful enough to defeat a platoon and has been in the family for generations. For him, the sacrifice is freeing. When a man carries an instrument of violence, he'll always find the justification to use it. If we really want to escape this war, we have to stop bringing it with us. And real shades of the Great Elder stuff. Wand here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Because this is saga. It's never easy for Marco to stay true to those words. The violence, as Hazel will say in book two, always consumes its host. But his relationship uh, to the tools of chill. violence— are ones that compromise who he wants to be and the life he wants to lead. The relationship that matters to him now is the one with Alana and Hazel. It's still just a thing, Alana, snapping it and opening the ship. Besides, you're my family now. Oh, man. Marco. Oh, God. Families build homes together. Doesn't have to be a house. For Marco, Alana, Hazel, and Isabel, their first home is this wooden tree house, the rocket ship that they find in the forest. It builds a bond with them. You don't steer a rocket ship, Isabel says. You ride it. And it helps them build those bonds with each other. It transports them both literally and metaphorically through their journey. It communicates with them these bursts of color to warn them or tell them what it needs. It wraps in-laws in tree yes. vines 
Roots take time to sprout and grow and extend their reach. But sometimes the pollen from a tree finds its mark right away. And Saga's decision to mock the idea of a traditional rom-com style meet-cute for Alana Marco through Hazel's narration is in this sense, just like their origin story with the rocket ship, so perfectly poetic. This is a deeply moving and thought-provoking story, but it is rarely subtle. I mean, we mean that as a compliment. Right, right. It is often to its credit. Marco is wearing a literal ball and chain (laughs) in this flashback (laughs) while Alana reads to him on his prison shift. And breaking that visual, that metaphor, is the thing that actually brings them together. All of these inversions and subversions consistently throughout the story. You think committing to someone, getting wifed up is going to drag you down? Let's flip that along with the traditional expectation in this galaxy for how to build a life together. But not everything shocks us. Sometimes you get exactly the thing you are looking for. And this is the kind of love story that includes the phrase, the snippet of dialogue, quote, I came like a dump truck, Marco. (laughs) Modern day Shakespeare. It's beautiful. Willie Shakes himself couldn't have said it better. Marco and Alana absolutely love to fuck. Uh, yeah. Love to fuck each other, have a genuine, thrilling, physical, emotional, and spiritual bond that is explosive in its yes. chemistry. They're in love. They're in love with being in love. They're in love just being around each other. And they also don't let a good orgasm blind them to the realities around them. Quote, what good is freedom if we can't do what we want? Marco asks after the epic lovemaking session in which Hazel was conceived. We're not free, Alana reminds him. And this is one of the great differentiators of Saga. We can become totally enraptured by the relationship, spellbound, heart racing, blood pumping, that the feeling of a new relationship that's gone to another level, that intoxicating feeling. But we never allow ourselves to believe that they'll be okay and this could turn out the way we want it to because the story does not allow that. They're never off the hook and out of the line of fire and so neither are we. Ah, sadly. They both know that as well as we do. But part of Marco's winning charisma and charm is that even amid his stern practicality, self-discipline, he's a bit of a dreamer, a bit of an idealist. Is there a better symbol for this terrifying new piece that you and I have forged on a child? He asked Solana, covering up <laughs> for fucking up the pullout birth control <laughs> yeah. method that they're using much more convincingly than Anakin. That's 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 great. Skywalker that's great. did in Revenge of the <laughs> Sith. Anakin needs some notes from Marco. <laughs> that sequence. When he's like, I came, and she's like, inside me. And he's like, yeah, didn't, your exact words were, shoot it in my twat. (laughs) Wild, wild stuff. Oh, my God. A child isn't a symbol, Alana shouts. It's a a child. It needs applesauce and and play pens and an ass load of other things we can't provide. One of those incredible moments where you allow yourself to run away with the romanticism of it all for a while. Yeah, and, and then, then it's just like pull you back to reality. In relationships, it can often feel like 
you want to say you're both right, but what you worry about is that you're both wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you're spiraling in this swirl of arguments and stasis. But Marco and Alana here are, of course, both right. Their love for Hazel always operated in concert with their acknowledgement of how precarious everything can feel and often is. Some parents let their young kids win at board games, Hazel says, but mine never did. I don't think it was because they were particularly competitive. They just wanted to teach me a valuable lesson. This part kills me. Life is mostly just learning how to lose. It's such a bittersweet story on every page. In many ways, Marco and Alana are just like all of us. I think part of the miracle of this story is it's these wild characters set in this crazy only in comics context. And yet it just is so relatable. And you see so many things from your own relationships in this story. They want to feel love and give love. They want to keep their family safe. As Prince Robot attacks Heist while the runaways hide upstairs when they're arguing about what to do and should they step in. And Alana's like, no, we get to stay up here. Why? Quote, because we have a family to think about now. The same line that she rebelled against each time Uh someone said it to her. We get to watch them evolve in real time. We get to watch them and we bear witness to that. In other ways, they remain utterly original, defined by their willingness to defy convention and chart a completely new course. They broke away from their confines that defined untold eons of conflict. As the brand tells Upshur and Doff, quote, it's the stories with no sides that worry them. It's such a great line. Man. They can't always find it in themselves to be people and the partners and the parents that they try to be. Right. In issue 18, when Marco drops the scissor knife he knows could save him, just as Heist refused to lethally stab four with his pen, we're asked to think about what pursuing the pacifist course could cost. A question yes. that resurfaces in absolutely brutal, <gasps> heartbreaking fashion when Marco puts down his shield in issue 54 and is yes. killed. But we're also asked time and again to gaze upon their boldness. And it is thrilling. Is it born of youth? Is it born of naivety? Are those two things necessary for forging a new course? Maybe you have to be ignorant of everything that's happened before to really do something new. These are all fascinating questions and things that uh, people can think about within their own lives. Mm -hmm. They followed their hearts instead of the lessons of decades of hate and war. They taught each other and their child and many others that dissent can be a solve, not merely a disruption. As Hazel tells us, quote, and this is, I love this line. Just incredible. All good children's stories are the same. Young creature breaks rules, has incredible adventure, then returns home with the knowledge that aforementioned rules are there for a reason. But as Marco and Alana showed her and us, quote, of course, the actual message to the careful reader is break rules as often as you can because who the hell doesn't want to have an adventure? Oh, my God. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's really great. Chills. I'm going to cry. Ah. Oh! Buddy, thanks for telling me to read this story. This is so special. I mean, where else can you read like someone say, I came like a dump truck and then hit you with a line that is like really a timeless bit of writing right there? A very, 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 very Thronesian blend. Yeah. No doubt about it. Let's talk about another member of this family, a surprising member of the family, Isabel. Love her. It doesn't take a village to raise children. Hazel tells us, as Isabel's first conversation with Alana is transpiring in issue three, chapter three. It takes a whole galaxy 
former friends, random acquaintances, complete strangers, even other children. Isabel and her fellow ghosts of Cleve are introduced to us as the horrors, being so savage that even Marco and the stock, who have yeah. seen some shit. That stock's like, I'm out. Whoever. <laughs> yeah, and the prospect of facing them. Like, forget my payday, I'm gone. But it turns out that they're just one of the myriad things in the galaxy that people attach a label to and then never bother to try to understand or see clearly. Part of that is of the horror's own making, of course. There is safety for them in stoking that reputation and projecting their own power along with the given illusion, that shadow-on-the-wall idea from Varys. Isabel may be pink and missing her lower half, dragging entrails and only able to leave Cleve by binding her soul to a living native and, you know, dead. But she's no different from Marco and Alana and Hazel and everyone else that they form these ties with over the course of the series. She is looking for connection. She is looking for a sense of belonging, a relationship that she can quite literally latch onto, but also count on and trust in. And this manifests quite literally for Isabel. She can't leave Cleve unless she ritually binds her soul to someone else's, in this case, Hazel's. But it's not just a party trick. It's a reminder of how rare it is to be able to count on anyone in this galaxy. Isabel and her fellows became, quote, spiritual defenders of Cleve after death. But as she notes, it's kind of an empty feeling and not much mm-hmm. of a bargain considering the landfall wreath war wiped out most of Cleve's populace. Not that great a, a prize in the end. They're no longer <laughs> defending something that feels like home or houses loved ones even. It's compromised land, a space that hate has depopulated and befouled. But there's still hope in Isabel's heart. Marco told us in Alana that, quote, spells require ingredients, and the one he needs, in this case, to stay alive after the stalk's attack is snow. Isabel offers to help Alana find it and thus save Marco's life. And this is unabashedly self-interested. You two are trying to find a way off my stupid planet, right? Take me with you. But with apologies to the believers in in pure altruism, self-interest doesn't have to be mutually exclusive from goodness as Isabel and her ongoing relationship with this family shows us time and again. Yes, Isabel may be a ghost, but she's also a person, as Clara would do well to keep in mind as she drops her acid barbs on Isabel (laughs) time and time again. A person with a name, a person with a history of her own, you know, as we will learn over time, love of her own, desire of her own, heartache of her own. I'm not about to share my newborn with some anonymous spook from, Alana says, to which Isabel replies in very wounded fashion, I'm not anonymous. My name is Isabel. And all across the galaxy, people pass each other by without ever stopping to get to know each other or really try to help even learn somebody's name. That is not about being from Landfall or Wreath or Cleave or Fang or anywhere else that will go. It's just about being a person with all of the selfishness and myopia that that can sometimes entail. Some of Saga's best moments are when characters pause just long enough to think about someone else, not as a hurdle, 
but as someone with a soul, a heart, dreams, motivations, regrets, sorrow. Experience. The war between Landfall and Reef, as we learn, is what killed Isabel. Stepped on a random landmine, she tells Alana. Don't know whose. Her parents were freedom fighters, but she wanted no part of the battle. Sounds like some other folks that we get to know across the story. And yet it claimed her life anyway. One more innocent lost. And it makes us think of the moment in Sorcerer's Stone in the Forbidden Forest when Ronan says, always the innocent are the first victims. So it has been for ages past. So it is now. Saga's hypothesis, though, is closer to something like always the innocents are the victims, the first, the middle, and the last. And the guilty people are the victims, too, because violence makes victims and fools of us all. Among the many ways this story plays with our expectations, as we mentioned earlier, is its relationship to the themes and tropes of Star Wars. Yes. Saga is another space opera set in a period of galactic war. We have a special child, bounty hunters, alien sidekicks, fast and light travel. However, Saga, a story about a family who has had enough of war, leans into the kind of real existential meaning of conflict and the effects of violence, the effects of trauma, mental and physical. Isabel and the horrors are just wonderful examples of this. At every turn, the story takes pains to remind us that war is a deadly tragedy from which no one is safe. Yes. This soul-bonding thing, Alana asks, will it hurt my girl? To which Isabel says, only on the day it ends. And that is a harbinger, which we will discuss more later today in the aid. But it is also a fundamental truth. Relationships take many forms. They're all different. Mm -hmm. They come about in different ways. But the meaningful ones always hurt when they end. And that is because they define something about your life. They alter something about it. They take root deep within, just like the rocket ship down in the earth on Quietus. Marco has known Isabel for all of two seconds when he puts on the crash helm and zooms out after her to what will become, we realize, the time sucks egg. Yes. But that's one of the many instances that reminds us that when it comes to family, the family that you choose, you don't have to stop to think. You just act. And that is what Isabel is for them. Marco, Clara, and Barr. Ah. Parents can't live with them, can't attempt to escape across the galaxy in a rocket ship treehouse without them. Summoned by Marco's Uh. fractured family sword, Clara and Barr join the fray and they bring memories of war with them. These are two people who have been brought up every moment of their life in the context of this conflict, steeped in conflict. They are hard-bitten ex-soldiers. Through flashback, one of Staples' contributions to Saga's narrative approach, we see that even though the fight had left Wreath for various proxy locales across the galaxy long ago before Marco came of age, his first memory is a violent one. Clara, his mother, slicing open his hand, allowing Marco to magically relive the last battle that took place on Wreath and the devastation there. And it's an event that people on Wreath consider a massacre. His parents didn't say a word, but the point of their lesson was clear. Never forget. Man. Marco and Alana would contend, of course, that everyone else has forgotten. Not them. Forgotten that no matter which planet you hail from, you are a living being worthy and capable of love, of forming a relationship. And that no matter which planet you hail from, you have also probably made some 
terrible mistakes that you deeply regret. You're also, of course, probably carrying years of ingrained bias. Is that what your history books taught you? <laughs> Bar derisively ask Salon after they trade the, in essence, standard your people killed my people war stories by way of greeting? As that exchange plays out on the ship, Marco and his mother are also arguing on the egg with Clara <laughs> revealing that they sold their house to pursue Marco, judging him <laughs> openly <laughs> and freely, <laughs> savagely, for what she labels his mistake with his, quote, wartime concubine. <laughs> Unbelievable. <stuff>. Wow, mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rough. <laughs> it should be a miracle that Clara, Barr, and Marco found each other again across the great expanse of space. And ultimately, as they mourn Bar and connect anew with Clara, it will feel like that. But initially, it's just one more threat, one more reminder that relationships so often function at the extremes. Yep. They can save us or they can unmoor us. And even the people that you think should have your best interests at heart can't always see the same thing that you do. Only one thing can really destroy a family, Hazel says. And we all know what that is, right? Yes. Itself. <laughs> Just as Barr uses the spinning wheel on the rocket ship to stitch together new ray-proof garments and the beautiful, beautiful stuff, Incredible. he works to repair these ties. Quote, I need to make sure that all of you will be safe after, after I'm gone. He's met his grandchild. Quote, nature's reminder that your warranty's about to run out. And he's heard Alana talk in her sleep about how much she loves Marco. The time that Barr has with Alana and Hazel while Marco and Clara are out trying to get Isabel back is brief, but it is lasting. Quote, congratulations, your daughter now has her very own belly button, she says what? after the last vestige of her umbilical cord falls off. These little moments aren't grand, but they're organic substance on which relationships are built, the matter yes. that's as sturdy and elemental as the stardust they're flying through. Don't be so hard on yourself, Barr tells Alana when she worries over Hazel's umbilical cord. It takes a lifetime to learn how to be a parent. And by the time you finally start to figure things out, and he trails off. Oh, boy, Barr. Crushing. Crushing stuff. Miss him. Sometimes, as we see, you don't figure it out until it's too late. With the time suck threatening the rocket ship in an exit strategy in desperate need, Barr shouts, son, before you go. But Marco's already running off, and he says, later, Pop. And of course, for the Oof. two of them, there is no later. By the time he returns, his father's dead, having sacrificed the last of his strength to cast a binding spell to hold the ship together amid its crash helm burning jump. And what better symbol could there be than literally binding together this home, yeah. this place for your family to thrive? This is quite a sequence with every member of the family doing its part to try to save the other, even though they're not totally aware of what the other person is doing. They don't know what will work, but they know they have to try. Your heart, Alana warns Barr, and he says, is down in the engine room. Marco and Clara, his family. <laughs> and if he's not going to do this for them, then what's the point? Right. Despite some of Barr's final words being about how he wasn't a good enough father to Marco and that regret that he carries, when Marco sees his father's body and realizes that he's gone, he doesn't think back to the blood and the misery and the thing he tried to escape. 
he finds himself thinking about this moment where he leapt into the air on this giant grasshopper-like creature. In other words, a moment when his father brought him joy and made him smile and helped him take flight. It's beautiful. For Clara and Alana, the path forward is rockier, murkier, but ultimately just as fruitful. Quote, a mother's place is in the workforce where she can provide for her people, Clara tells Alana, simultaneously managing to insult her for enjoying some well-earned leisure time. It's She's just given birth, Clara, mm-hmm. and to encourage her to take an active role in her own life. As Alana says, okay, that is surprisingly progressive and totally offensive. <laughs> Clara often serves as an effective lens for both considering the nature of nurture, the history that binds us to a people, a place, and a way of life. She's also a contrast, a reminder that those we call family are not always 100% of the time on our Mm -hmm. side agreeing with us. We can pick our family, too. Sometimes that means deciding to move forward with blood. Sometimes it means building something new with those we found along the way. At one point on the rocket ship, Clara asks, what does it burn for fuel? Pieces of itself? I love Sometimes this. families can work that way, consuming itself to keep going. But that doesn't always have to be a bad thing. Fire can destroy, but it can also heal. And from it, something new can rise, the family that you choose. Oh, man. There is, of course, no better character to unlock the idea of the family you choose than D. Oswald Heist and his relationship to the family that he did not know his work and his ideas helped spawn. This is... I mean, I loved it from the start, but it went to another level with the arrival of Heist on my first read. So He's good. just a one of a kind. <laughs> Quote, I want our daughter to meet the smartest person in the universe. That's why Alana takes the rocket ship and her family to quiet us. Unfortunately, Alana is just like all of us here at Binge Mode. Always talking about the story she loves. <laughs> she cannot stop talking about it. Cannot stop giving the book away, making people read it. Cannot stop. Evangelizing on behalf yeah. of a nighttime smoke. Now, normally, this is a great thing. But not when it means that Prince Robot the Fourth is able to discover her <laughs> affinity for that tale. Knowing it makes her dangerous because it means she's smart. She's subtle and nuanced and subversive. It's the mother who really frightens me, he tells Gail. And I love that part. He's holding the text in his hand. He knows, after looking at the back cover, that the author, D. Oswald Heist, lives on quietus. And he knows, despite never having interacted with Alana yet at this point, that that is where she will go. Heist and his unexpected and fawning guests are a meditation on another kind of family tie, a bond, a relationship that is very close to Binge Mode's heart, and it's the one between a story and its readers. If you've been touched by a story, if you felt the course of your life changed by a special tale, Marco and Alana's arrival at Heist's lighthouse after the encounter with the bone bugs, that is, in which Clara loses her ear. (laughs) Tough stuff. Is filled with... Just intensely relatable moments, starting with Isabel's iconic admonition to Clara. Hush, let them geek out. The best. (laughs) She may be a teenage ghost, but she is wise, folks. So sage. Alana says, in this rush of feeling and emotion to heist, 
We named our daughter Hazel after the librarian who first recommended your work to me, Alana says. When I was younger, your stories literally saved my life. Literally. Incredible. And you don't have to be trapped in a generations-long space war to feel this way. If you love stories, this is not hyperbole. A good story reaches into the dark, unreachable parts of your heart like a lighthouse where you feel most naked and vulnerable and it throws you a lifeline and says, I see you. I understand how you feel. When the right story comes into your life at the right time, it can help make sense of a crazy world and it can absolutely save your life. It's meaningful for Heist as well. His emotions are so stirred by the realization that someone actually gets it, that someone actually Mm -hmm. got his novel. You read it. You got it, he says. That he promptly vomits on Hazel, although surely the bottle of anonymous space <laughs> liquor that he was neck deep in when his guest showed up played oh a meaningful role in this. Quite a christening for Hazel. <laughs> Back in the lighthouse, the nerd fest continues. Alana freaks out at the sight of Heist's library. Marco, fascinated by the author's plot diagrams, takes a closer look. The next book he's working on is apparently called The Opposite of War. Which is what? Marco wants to know. No, no spoilers, Alana says, covering her ears. Oh, my gosh. This is all so fucking good. I love the choice to place this part of the story in a lighthouse and what that symbolizes and represents, you know, being out there on the edge, often alone, the only one position to pierce through that darkness. It's so good. A lighthouse (sighs) surrounded by a field of skeletons yes animated skeletons all of the people who couldn't see (laughs) in addition to being an envoy for the power of storytelling heist serves another function he's a poster boy for pacifism a test case for whether it works and how it looks and feels when four shoots him in the knee fucked up by the way dick move by prince he's under a lot of pressure and he almost died the last time he was in the field and his wife is about to give birth, but it's really, it, this is wrong. Yes, we'll talk about four in a minute. He's dealing with a lot, but doesn't He's dealing with a lot, well in the but field. This, is, this is wrong. In addition to shooting heist, he mocks his son's suicide. Obviously it's horrifying. Awful. awful. Appalling. He taunts heist. He shows him where to jam the weakened neck circuit, the battle wound that he yeah. suffered in order to deal that fatal blow because he knows that heist won't do it. Can't do it because doing so, especially with the pen, the symbol, the way that he puts his words and his message into the world would violate what he believes in and holds dear. Because what does heist hold so sacred? A call to action via inaction. His son, as we learn, died and that death haunts him and it informs along with his first wife's death. And she was an innocent. Every choice that he's made since. The glimpses that we get of the actual text of a nighttime smoke, always hard to pull off a story within the story, but this is done quite well. Make it clear how that message carries through. They watch the purple stains relentless march across the rug. Will you judge me if I open another bottle? War is a drug. It is that stain creeping ever further across the floor. But the protagonists in this story are, quote, a rock monster and the daughter of this rich quarry owner. In other words, sides who should be diametrically opposed but aren't have decided to allow themselves to be drawn to each other. Alana and Marco's ink and paper twin, in other words. 
It's not a love story at all, is it? Marco asks Alana as she reads to him during his prison shift. It's about us, about the war between Landfall and Wreath. Heist's death at ultimately Gwendolyn's hands plays out alongside this really wrenching narration from Hazel. Quote, the advice to kill your darlings has been attributed to various authors across the galaxies. So good. And Mr. Heist hated them all. Why teach young writers to edit out whatever it is they feel most passionate about? Better to kill everything in their writing they don't love as much until only the darlings remain. So good. But Heist's impact remains long after Gwendolyn lances him through his one eye and his body fails and our friends exit quietus. When Marco and Alana are arriving at the conclusion, as after they have been incepted by Heist, primed by him, that they'll need to earn money, they'll need to work, they should pursue the circuit, they quote Heist's work. We used to have creators, but they all ran away. The two of us don't have to become office drones, Marco says, or mercenaries to take care of our girl. Maybe we can help make something. And of course, that is what they do. They made more than just something. They made Hazel. They made a family. They made a life together. And they first found the courage to even think about doing so because of the power of Heist's words and the message at the heart of his story. Quote, and the two heavenly bodies danced around their star, he wrote in a nighttime smoke. And Marco and Alana danced around their star, Hazel. And that we don't yet know how the second half of Hazel's story will unfold, you know, exactly what issues 55 through 108 will look like. We know that Heist and the power of his words and the power of stories that he helped instill in her family will remain a crucial part of her identity and her tale. Remember that outfit that her grandfather Barr made her? It's part of how she connects to stories now, just as Heist's lessons are. Quote, I still have one scrap of the outfit he made me, Hazel says. These days, I use it as a bookmark. The Will, wonderful, beautiful lion cat, Sophie and Gwendolyn. The Will, what to say about him? He is a complex fellow. He's the first freelancer we meet. Saga's kind of spin on the bounty hunter guild tradition from Star Wars. He even has a, you know, like Han Solo pants mm-hmm. with... You know, with the cape action, he's, he looks like a figure out of Star Wars. <laughs> what kind of assholes bring a kid into a world like these? He asks Lion Cat after learning about Marco, Alana, and Hazel. The Will ends up committing some of the most appalling crimes in this story, including, again, spoiler, 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 killing Marco Awful. in the closing pages of issue 54. But early on, we kind of like him. I described it to you in Slack as kind of like Jamie Lannister in reverse. Yep. We kind of like him, and then he turns into a villain. At least that's where he is now. He's handsome. He's rugged. He's tough. He eats kids' cereal. He values life, objecting to Vez's needless slaughter of a creature. You use that beautiful thing as bait? During the Will's audition, he resents her classification of Lion Cat as an animal. And the sextillion's labeling of her as a pet. She is his sidekick. He's always quick to remind people. His partner, his friend, quote, doesn't matter if it's personal or professional, Hazel tells us. The Will lets Lion Cat stalk off the ship while he goes to get his rocks off on sextillion. A good partnership takes work. The Will's attachments are often surprising and position us for shock and dismay when he finally succumbs to the darkness and the evil within and kills Marco. But early on, he's fiercely loyal to Lion Cat. 
He uproots his entire life to avenge the stock who broke his heart. And they weren't mm-hmm. even that close to like when you see flashbacks of it, you're like, she wasn't even good to you. Like what yeah. happened? Yeah. Although I think we all know we've either all had experiences or know people who where you're like, why are you hung up on this person? They treat you like trash. And yeah. that is the will. He falls in love with Gwendolyn. There's the brand. And of course, Sophie who he saves from a life of horror and slavery on Sextillion. In the to-be-continued section at the end of the book one edition, Vaughn includes a snapshot of an outline for one of the issues, and the issue that they chose to feature is issue four. And there are 22 prompts in the outline, as there always are, he says, for his outlines. Fascinating thing where he says he has to use a notebook that has exactly 22 lines on it or he can't write. It's really interesting. Number 16 centers on meeting the girl who will eventually be named Sophie. Quote, 16, horrific intro of a true slave girl, the opposite of Leia in a sexy gold bikini. Wow. Star Wars, as we've noted, is a massive influence on BKV and Saga, but not only by way of homage. Often that influence manifests in a clear attempt to compound, alter, or subvert a classic Star Warsian fantasy trope. A woman imprisoned by a galactic monster and treated not as a human being, but as an object for someone else's pleasure, should not be a source of lust here. It is presented as vile, hideous, and wrong. And it's one more insight, of course, into the way the war that has torn this galaxy apart sends all of these foul, unthinkable ripples throughout civilizations. As soon as the wings and horns finish up with a planet, the sextillion pimp tells the will, we start recruiting. This part is just disgusting. When the will sees that this means human trafficking, using children as sex slaves, he responds by crushing the pimp's head with his bare hands. Eventually, he will kill Marco and our spirits, but the irony of that is that at the story's outset, he and Marco, even in their roles as hunter and prey, are in some ways, surprisingly aligned. When Vex conducts her interview with the Will in issue one, she says, the man I want you to find shares your appalling sense of moral relativism. (laughs) (laughs) When the Will loses Lion Cat and Gwen and Sophie and other Sophie, his sister, the brand, that is her name, we realize, and his job and his physical ability and his freedom and his hope one after another after another. He also, as a result of that, loses something else. His moral compass. Mere panels after the will wins us over, though. We get this warning from Hazel in the form of narration. Quote, like every freelancer I had the misfortune to eventually meet, he was a fucking monster. He's not the one who launches missiles at Marco Alana, Hazel and company, though. That's Gwen. Scorned and out for vengeance, though she might try to deny it. Meanwhile, Lion Cat calls her on it every time. Sophie can hear Gwen's rings, and Gwen is following her senses, too. I can feel Marco, she tells an outrage the will. Marco told Alana that he and Gwendolyn ended things long before he wound up with Alana, but the hurt and the rage can linger, especially if you know the other person has moved on. Quote, Dad once said that breakups are like battles. They usually involve collateral damage. When former lovers fight, Innocents get caught in the crossfire, Hazel says, as Gwen's missile meant for Marco hits the time suck instead. Quote, the end of a long-term relationship is so destructive it can impact friends, colleagues, people you have never even 
met. And that's so true. And the rub, the crux of the problem, as Hazel says, if it's not you or your loved ones, typically people don't care. The will somewhere in his black heart really did care about the sock. Enough that she never leaves him, even after death, staying with him as a corrupting companion vision. The moment when he names Sophie is a strong encapsulation of this kind of war within himself. Naming her is a kind and caring act, a recognition of her humanity, as we'll learn in time. It is a honorific to his own sister, who is so important to him, his own family. It's also the product of the stock in his mind, telling him to his evil past, guiding him forward. Some of this group's bonds sprout not from viciousness, but from goodness, like Lion Cat and Sophie's. Quote, I'm all dirty on the inside because I did bad things with, and then Cat, lying. It's such an incredible panel. Elsie wants to comfort Sophie and help her embrace her new life and the goodness within. It's a beautiful bond, untouched by the heroin ingesting or accidental stabbing. The Will who wakes up post-stabbing uh-huh. will rarely reveal any goodness. But the Will who succumbs to his wound here still has that shred of humanity within him. He says as he's kind of fading out, tell Honest Cat that me and you are square and it's her job to watch after you here on out. And love it. And she will. Yes. Earlier, Mama Son said, if you're thinking about making her some kind of contract-killing apprentice, don't bother, I assure you. Slave girl is a lover, not a fighter. But Sophie will learn to fight. She'll learn to build a true partnership with Lion Cat. She'll learn to defend herself and the others she cares for. She's a necessary reminder in a group often defined by the inability to outrun the past that sometimes you really can't start over. Someone else who earns a confusing emotional response from us and both our rage and our pity in almost equal measure, Prince Robot IV. Our first glimpse of the Robot Kingdom actually comes in the form of Baron Robot, who brings the coalition forces to attack Alana and Marco right after Hazel's birth. So our association instantly with the androids is with pursuers, with that evil enemy who wants to keep Marco, Alana, and Hazel apart. Our first glimpse of Thor himself is nude, laid bare, as we will often see him again, confronting some deep-seated insecurity, fear, or desire. He has been at war for two years, but his father, King Robot, who we will eventually see walking around with like a (laughs) 70-inch 4K TV as a head. Flat screen 4K, 4K. (laughs) Wants him to take care of Marco and Alana, this unholy union that the kingdom cannot let stand. Surviving isn't exactly winning, Gail tells Four when Four laments having to hit the road again so soon after returning from this really vicious and damaging campaign. Saga is full of morally ambiguous and complex figures, Four chief among them. But one of the great differentiators in the story comes from that idea. To people like Marco and Alana, surviving is winning, actually. Mm -hmm. Because it means that they can be together. It means that they can continue trying to build a life. To Gale, to the hordes like him, in other words, to the people we're rooting against, victory comes not from building something up, but from tearing something else down. When Four first comes into this story, he is a monster, but also quite clearly a tragic figure. I don't understand, he tells Gale. I told my parents I wanted to start a family this year. And when... Princess tells him that they're going to have a baby. He says it's the happiest he's ever been. And he means it, as we'll see when his quest to find and protect his son, the future squire, helps to transform him. 
His bond with Squire's eventual alliance with Alana and Marco later in the story and love affair with Petrichor is one of the really wonderful, warm surprises. But the choices he makes before that ultimately lead him to doom and damn so many along the way. And that's the case even though he wants the same thing that Marco and Alana and his targets do. Family, love, safety. In the to-be-continued feature at the end of book one, Fiona Staples says of her portrait cover style, quote, Saga is more about who characters are than who they punch. Love She's that. speaking of the will in that moment, but Prince Robot the Fourth embodies this idea as well as anyone in the story. You know, you said a few minutes ago that the will is like the opposite of Jamie Lannister. Well, four is the approximation for yes. Jamie in this story. This person who has introduced us by doing some of the most vile and, and vicious things. And despite us always carrying that knowledge of pasties <laughs> and what this person is still capable of kind of can't help but be drawn in and develop real affection. And the fact that you know that the character himself doesn't think he's worthy of yeah. finding that peace and happiness is one of the most wrenching parts of all of it. The wonderful device that BKV and Fiona use with Four's character is, you know, they have the the robot royal family and everybody on their planet has televisions for heads. Mm -hmm. The ones who are in black and white are like peasants. If you have color, you're then you're a member of the royal family. But there's always images that reveal some really cutting truth that yes. Ford would like to keep hidden. Right, but can't. They're always flashing up on the screen. And I love that device. Yeah, it's so cool. His body is human-like, but his head is that direct portal into his mind and his soul and he the fact that he can't control it and quite obviously can't control it is part of what makes it so interesting and compelling and you get those glimpses when something intriguing is happening when he's operating at some emotional high or low point his rage his passion his fear it flashes these images that reveal his state of mind when he turns his arm into a cannon and slays the stalk setting into motion the course of events that will lead to the will eventually ripping off his head in issue 53. <laughs> Come on, the will. Whew, the will, responsible for a lot of pain. Yeah. Reinforces, again, one of Saga's core tenets, that actions, no matter how well-intentioned, always have consequences. Like Marco said, you can't outrun that violence. And Force Face conveys his motivation from the start in full. He's killing the stock, but what do we see on his face? A baby rattle. Yep. He's doing something violent and awful and, and ultimately unjustified, but he's doing it on some level because he's trying to save and protect something else. It's this symbol of this burgeoning family that he's working to get back to and protect. One of the more intriguing aspects of four, as we noted before, is that we can glean What's on his mind by watching his screen as he dreams? And this is something that Hazel will get a lot of entertainment of out of later there. in this story. Quite an invasion, really. The fantasy playing out on his face as he nearly dies in battle. The horrors he witnessed in war. He suffered immense trauma. And he actually has pretty sharp circuitry in that monitor head of his. He was right to track Alana to Quietus. You're being coy, heist. This work is obviously a thinly veiled treatise on radical pacifism, a compelling, if not entirely persuasive, call to inaction. <laughs> I love that. Cutting right to the bone. And in another life, maybe he and Heist could have found some way forward together, too. After all, when Four picks up Heist's latest book, The Opposite of War, they manage to trace their way to the is fucking mic drop together by recalling what Four saw before his very near-death experience. 
Four's ability to reach this epiphany alongside Heist, a blooming ripe flower opening on his facial screen, primes us for the ensuing moments later in the story when he allows his heart and his desire to lead him, to care for his son Squire, to discover new passions and new love with Petrichor. But these glimmers of possibility are wrapped in a showdown, war masquerading as necessity. And by the time Four eventually allows them to rule his life instead of hate, the products of his earlier sins are right on his heels. Speaking of being on heels, our intrepid journalists, Upshur and Doff, are obviously on many characters' heels throughout the story. We are running long today, so we're not going to chat about the Jetsam duo in the book one pod, but we will be spending a lot of time on them in the next two saga pods. Fear not. Jason? Yes. It was a time of war. Isn't it always? So please gather the house guests. Head to the lighthouse. Teach us everything we need to know about the history of proxy wars. Proxy wars. If you've ever played Risk, and who among us does not have fond memories of spending two and a half days in front of a Risk board with three or four of your closest friends, if you've done that, you probably have a decent understanding of proxy war. Say you're a great power that wants to extend influence while defending your sphere from the influence of other powers. Can't be everywhere at once. And war costs blood and treasure. But there's another, usually cheaper option. Get someone else to do the fighting for you. A proxy war is a conflict between parties in which the fighting is primarily carried out by third parties. These parties can include official armies of legitimate governments, Irregular forces such as terrorists or insurgents, privately owned military outfits, a.k.a. mercenaries, and even organized crime groups. There are many reasons why combatants might decide to fight via proxy. Generally speaking, proxy wars happen when one or both sides feels it necessary to oppose the other's political and economic goals, but deems open warfare too costly and dangerous. For instance, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, the most apt comparison to the struggle between landfall and wreath involved a series of proxy conflicts in which the opposing superpower gave material support to a proxy to oppose its foe. These included the Korean War, 1950 to 1953, though technically still ongoing, in which China and the Soviet Union provided soldiers and weapons to forces that would fight the Americans. Vietnam, 1955-1975, the Angolan Civil War, 1975 to the end of the Cold War, with more fighting after the end of the Cold War, basically to about 2002, and the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, 1979 to 1989, and there are many, 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 many others. Like the struggle between landfall and wreath, the Cold War was essentially a battle between competing ideologies, capitalism against international communism. Each side considered it vital and necessary to oppose the other's aims. But after the devastation of the Second World War, neither superpower was exactly chomping at the bit to get involved openly in a third. By the 1950s, both sides were armed with nukes, and the calculus of war now involved the sure destruction of the planet. But as you can probably sense from the aforementioned list of conflicts, the real losers here are the people who live in the countries where the fighting occurred. Smaller-scale proxy wars can sometimes involve an imbalance of power. It's like the David and Goliath problem. Mm -hmm. How do you fight a much stronger foe? You have to think outside the box, and proxies can be that solution. Pakistan, born in 1947 after the partition of India, an almost unimaginable upheaval, which costs, according to some estimates, 2 million lives and more than 10 million people displaced. That separation caused immense bitterness between the two nations and left Pakistan the much weaker of the two militarily and economically. 
in the years since Pakistan and India have fought numerous skirmishes and four flat-out wars, including the 1971 conflict, which saw Pakistan lose the eastern chunk of its territory to the newly created nation of Bangladesh. Pakistan considers its neighbor an existential threat who has already engineered its dismemberment. Proxies, then, are an integral part of the nation's military strategy. Nasid Hijari, in the introduction to his excellent and very, very readable history of the partition, Midnight Furies, the Deadly Legacy of India's Partition, writes, quote, Today, anxiety about the India threat drives the Pakistani state's most destabilizing behavior, in particular, its use of jihadists as tools of state. Since the late 1980s, the Pakistan army's ruthless Inter-Services Intelligence Agency, the ISI, has cultivated several militant groups to bleed the Indians in Kashmir. Foremost among them is Lakshari Taiba, whose fighters carried out the bloody 2008 terror attacks in Mumbai. ISI support was similarly critical in creating the Taliban movement in the 1990s and to rebuilding it in the 2000s, in both cases to ensure that Afghanistan did not fall under India's sway. End quote. Pakistan has denied any knowledge of what Lakshar was planning in 2008. In his history of the United States Afghanistan War Directorate S., journalist Steve Call writes that an intelligence study of the Mumbai attack carried out by the U.S. and allied intelligence services concluded that retired ISI officers helped plan the attack, but they, quote, had not cleared the audacious scale of the Mumbai operations with superiors. Pakistan, meanwhile, might argue that they are not the only ones to use proxies. Pakistan has long accused Indian intelligence of supporting insurgencies in Pakistan's Balochistan region, and India steadfastly denies this. It goes without saying that that kind of deniability is one of the features of employing proxies. When the Bolin Amendment capped the U.S.'s aid to right-wing Nicaraguan Contra rebels who sought to overthrow Nicaragua's socialist government, Reagan administration official concocted an illegal scheme to sell arms to Iran and use the proceeds to fund the Contras. The so-called Iran-Contra affair was a signature scandal of the 80s. A proxy relationship, like any alliance, is based on mutual interest, and often those interests with proxies are quite narrow in scope leading to some obvious downsides. After the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979, the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and other allies funneled arms and materials worth many billions of dollars to the Afghan Mujahideen fighters through Pakistan and the ISI. The Afghans won, the Soviets withdrew in 1988-89, and the U.S. lost any interest in the region, which its arms had effectively helped destroy. Within only a few years, Afghanistan, its infrastructure wrecked, by a decade of war, had become an international terrorist training ground, and many of the players were the same fighters who had battled the Soviets. Quote, it's quite a shock, said Charles G. Kogan, the CIA's operations chief for the Near East and South Asia from 1979 to 1984 in a 1994 New York Times article titled Blowback from the Afghan Battlefield. Quote, the hypothesis that the Mujahideen would come to the U.S. and commit terrorist attacks did not enter into our universe of thinking at the time. We were totally preoccupied with the war against the Soviets in Afghanistan. It is a significant and unintended consequence. Unintended consequences are a feature of any conflict, and proxy wars included. Once you send weapons and cash to a group, they could do whatever they want with that weapons and money. Operation MIAS, Missing in Action Stingers, was a CIA-run program aimed at reacquiring shoulder-launched Stinger surface-to-air missiles, which the U.S. had sent to the Mujahideen to aid their fight against the Soviets. A 1993 L.A. Times article about an increase in funding for the program noted, quote, U.S. agents have been finding themselves outbid for the accurate shoulder launch rockets that now fetch upwards of $100,000 a piece on the black market, officials said. The weapons originally cost $25,000 to $30,000 each, end quote. 
The use of private military groups as proxies or less obliquely mercenaries is a constant feature of warfare. However, it doesn't take a master strategist or a reader of George R. R. Martin to realize that war for profit creates some pretty perverse incentives and has some pretty significant downsides. In the late Middle Ages, pre the Peace of Westphalia, with Europe in a constant state of war, soldiering came to be seen as a career, and mercenaries became prized for their prowess because they came well-equipped. And because the last thing a lot of these dukes and princes wanted was to arm their own people and create an army and make their people good at fighting and then have them sitting around looking at them like, hey, why are you running stuff? Ideally, mercenaries would leave at the end of a job, and that's ideally Not always the case. In 1447, mercenary Captain Francesco Forza was hired by the Milanese to defend against the invading Venetians. A year later, Forza flipped to the Venetians and promptly laid siege to Milan. In 1450, he conquered Milan and had himself proclaimed Duke Francesco Forza, beginning the Forza dynasty in Milan. Shouts the Golden Company, who famously never broke a contract except for that one time. As you likely realize... The use of proxies is as old as warfare itself. Geraint Hughes, professor of defense studies at King's College in London, notes in the introduction to his book, My Enemy's Enemy, Proxy Warfare in International Politics, that the Greek historian Thucydides and the Florentine political advisor Niccolo Machiavelli and the Prussian general and military theorist Karl von Clausewitz all mention the use of proxies in their respective works, which spans some 2,200-plus years. The first written version of the proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, comes from the Arthashastra, an Indian 4th century BC treatise on politics and statecraft. In fact, you'd be really hard-pressed to come up with a conflict that did not involve some element of proxy war. Anyone who has seen Hamilton will tell you the American Revolution itself might not have succeeded if not for help from France. The French had a centuries-long running rivalry with England and seeking to weaken Great Britain, sent the upstart colonials gunpowder weapons and eventually soldiers and ships. Makes me want to hear the Baby Yoda Hamilton song. Yeah. When we think of cabinet battle. Mal, there are only three forms of high art. The symphony, the illustrated children's book, and the board game. Another absolutely iconic quote from Heist. But there are eight (laughs) nuggets. So let's gaze like the stalk's eight eyes. Upon eight of our favorite insights and observations from the first 18 issues of Saga Lightning Round Style, you go first. Number one. Saga regularly reminds us of the resilience of love, but also, of course, of the creeping, sprawling consequences of violence and hate. When the Will, Lion Cat, and Gwendolyn battle sextillion loss prevention in Chapter 9 to save the child, whom the Will will eventually name Sophie, they eliminate three mole-faced toughs who are trying to keep soon-to-be Sophie enslaved under Mama Son's control. At the time, this seems like an isolated bit of bloodshed, one more or three more bodies in a galaxy strewn with them. But Saga reminds us time and again that bloodshed by definition cannot be isolated. The droplets always spread. And in issue 42, which is volume seven, book three, we realize that those droplets of blood from those murders, from those deaths, have pulled into a new villain. Ianthi, 
a bloodthirsty diplomat who's out for vengeance and armed with diplomatic immunity, taking the will prisoner, killing Sweet Boy. Give us preemptive early bells for Sweet Boy, and he will be getting them again. Horrifying. Sweet Boy did not deserve this. No. Zlate and his cat Queenie and Duff capturing Squire and shooting off one of Alana's wings until Upshur avenges his partner Doth's death by shooting Ianthe in the face with a signal flare mushroom and then shooting her with a gun in the gut, maybe or maybe not honoring her ensuing pleas to kill her to finish her. It's a cliffhanger at this point. Yeah. All of that happens because the Will murdered her fiancé, Hector, one of the mole-faced toughs. But the damage extends even beyond that as it so often does in Saga. The Will winds up in his fateful showdown with Marco in Ayante's Malibu beach house spaceship. Incredible spaceship, tra- by the way. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yes. That would be the one they featured on the MTV Cribs for Saga. Yeah. Because he traveled to their hideaway planet with Ayante as her captive. As Hazel's narration tells us, when Ianthe is introduced, quote, the only action that has vaster repercussions for the universe than making a life is taking one, which is why I'll never Oof. understand why most people put so little foresight into doing either. Whew. We feel the devastating weight of those words when the will punches a hole <sighs> through Marco's chest. That's Similarly, right. in issue five, Alana says to Marco, after his conflict with the wings, So the guy whose hand you lopped off comes after us with a hook in 20 years. Add him to the list. Well, Marco doesn't chop off the Will's hand, but Goose does. And the metal ruin that the Will wields by the time he faces off with Marco is what he uses to punch that hole through Marco's chest. It is utterly tragic. And one of Saga's truly most potent reminders of how wide the web of violence really is. Even more heartbreaking for the fact that Marco tried so hard to not kill people. Number two, another small nugget in this early stretch of the Sophie and the Will arc winds up playing a massive role in book three as well, specifically volume seven titled The War for Fang. In issue five, as the Will is rescuing her from Sextillion, Sophie tells him that she's not from a planet, she's from a comet called Fang. Quickly becomes clear that this comet has quite a reputation. In issue nine, when the Will, Elsie, and Gwen are undergoing their rescue effort, Gwen says... Did she really tell you she was from Fang? Those comet people freak me the fuck out. Well, in issue 37, with the rocket ship springing a fuel leak and no planets in range, our gang has no choice but to land on Fang to refuel. We're primed for oddity and we're primed for terror and so are the characters, but we wind up seeing beautiful bonds and inevitably heartache as what ensues is one of the most striking and wrenching arcs in the whole series. The decision to head to Fang comes with this narration from Hazel, quote, Nothing in the universe was safe from the endless war between mom's planet and dad's moon, not even a humble stone skipping across the cosmos. Across volume seven, we watch the truth of those words play out in grueling fashion, culminating in a full black splash page after a full black splash page, the complete erasure of a place and its people. Fang sprouted insurrection and became one of the many locales in the cosmos touched by the war between landfall and wreath, leaving the monsters on its soil to export human beings like Sophie and all parties to covet the precious fuel beneath its surface. Our gang, in search of that very fuel, winds up living on Fang for six months, during which the family, or as they call it, their tribe, grows to include a slew of locals, including darling Curti, 
Hazel's first crush. Bells for Curdy, who we lose, unfortunately. We lose Alana and Marco's unborn child. We lose Fang entirely as Hazel's words, quote, I guess I'm just haunted by all that potential energy. One moment the universe presents you with an amazing opportunity for new possibilities and then fade to black. And we lose that all to a time suck. Another galactic force first introduced to us in book one under Fard's watchful gaze and disgusting testicles. So gross. The time suck is so scary. Yeah. Number three. Earlier in the Fang arc, before the comet's destruction, we also lose Isabel. And her demise connects to multiple elements that are teased back in book one. First, the existence of a freelancer known as the March, whom we glimpse in volume two, issue eight, very briefly floating as a hologram head, Star Wars style, and venting to the representative from Brio Talent Agency, whom Gwendolyn then seeks out. The March is angry about freelancers' role in the war, missing payment, and that rage and thirst for liquidity, financial freedom, both come to the fore in issue 38 when the March and their sidekick bootstraps appear on Fang hunting for Marco. We see outside of the original hologram view that the March is a two-headed being, and the March's first act is fittingly doubly horrifying, killing Isabel by trapping her and then running her through with a sword that they tell her in advance will be different, will kill her permanently, even though she's already a ghost. And that brings us to the next callback, an early line that winds up serving as gutting foreshadowing. In issue three, when Alana asks Isabel if the soul-bonding ritual will hurt Hazel, Isabel says, only on the day it ends. (sighs) Now, a couple other things to factor in here. Distressingly, Alana's own joke in issue three, as they board a boat in Isabel's shortcut to the snow that ends up saving Marco, does prime us for Isabel dying again. Call me ma'am again, Alana says. I find a way to kill you a second time. Now, some Saga fans like yours truly, just refuse to believe that Isabel could really be gone for good. And there's some stuff to cling to if you're in denial, such as a Chapter 7 conversation that contains a brief, tiny sliver of hope. When Clara and Alana first throw down over Isabel's atomization, Clara says quite calmly, you can't kill something that's already dead. I simply hit her with a banishment spell. So, Maybe, 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 maybe the March did some version of that as well. Perhaps one more clue here, albeit a truly desperate attempt to grasp at straws of hope. The March's initial introduction in Chapter 8 comes one panel after Hazel says, quote, how can you be haunted by something that never really dies? That is a tantalizing adjacency right there, given what eventually unfolds. But ultimately, we have to acknowledge that the biggest clue that Isabel really may be gone for good comes from Hazel's reaction and the closing of that only on the day it ends loop, that promise. It's Isabel. Hazel will shriek in issue 39. I I can't feel her anymore. I think she's gone. Oof. Number four, our dude Heist. Yeah. Was no stranger to loss. His son died by suicide after the trauma of being a soldier. His first wife, Missy, was killed by wreath forces during the Battle of Cartwright. And his second marriage ended in peril as well, although she was kind of scummy. In issue 15, Heist tells Marco, Alana, and Clara during a game of Nun Tuj Nun, quote, my second wife learned to play it on Gardenia. Then she taught me. Probably the only positive takeaway from that particular union, come to think of it. 
When Marco and Alana take the family to Gardenia in book two, however, they seek out wife number two, Yuma, who helps Alana maintain her job at the open circuit after a heist incepts Alana and Marco with the idea. The underground acting troupe where Alana briefly makes a living is the masked vigilante Zipless, while Marco, bleach blonde hair and bandaged face, takes Hazel to dance lessons. And it's fun to see Alana's early interest in acting bear fruit later in the story, as in issue 16, Alana tells Marco that she once wanted to join an acting troupe and saying specifically of life in the circuit, quote, I doubt I could have survived the audition. Marco's reply hatches their plan. Only one way to find out. Likewise, it's fascinating to see how Heist's odd statement about his second wife nets out. She fucks up royally more Ugh. than once, including getting Alana pretty much hooked on the drug fadeaway and coughing yeah. up Hazel's existence and whereabouts to Dengo, a lowly stooge of the robot kingdom turned terrorist. In her defense, in that case, he was going to kill her. But Yuma eventually redeems herself, playing an integral role in the search effort for Hazel and eventually sacrificing her life Spock in Wrath of Khan style in order to repair a fuel leak and facilitate their escape. Her death in issue 28 is one of the most legendary bong rips in comics, <laughs> accompanied as it is by the following narration. Yeah, she wasn't always perfect, but who the hell is? So here's to another victim of this goddamn war. A woman who at least managed to die exactly as she lived. Beat. High as fuck. <laughs> and the accompanying art for Amazing. that panel. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Incredible. Incredible work by Fiona. <laughs> Number five. When Yuma incinerates herself in issue 28, she saves many of the characters that we care about deeply uh, at that point, including, of course, our precious seal pup, Goose, whom we guy. first meet on Quietus in issue 12. He's walking with sweet friendo. And he greets us and Prince Robot with the iconic, uh-oh, Mr. Heist doesn't like visitors unless they're lady folk. Everything you need to know about Heist in one sentence from Goose. <gasps> then shortly thereafter, basically asks if he has booze. <laughs> Goose's rise from glorified crossing guard to central figure in our wooden treehouse family, slicing off the Will's fingers, protecting sweet squire, Using the almost warg-like bond yeah. with Frendo to track her and thus Alana and co. across the galaxy is really one of the great surprises of the series. And interestingly, he was a surprise to the creators, too. In a 2017 piece for Barnes & Noble, Fiona Staples revealed how 10 characters that she picks as being emblematic of their creation process, how the sketches for them came to life. Quote, Goose is unique because he's just an idea out of my sketchbook that I sent to Brian one day, hoping he'd get a cameo appearance or something. I had no idea he'd join our main cast, and I don't know what manner of creature would have filled that role otherwise. That's so cool. Vaughn had previously revealed that origin story, saying in a 2016 interview with Barnes & Noble's Joel Cunningham, quote, Fiona and I talk between each arc, and her ideas and designs profoundly influence the direction of the book. For example, our little seal guy, Goose, is 100% her creation. And I knew he'd become a major part of our narrative the second I saw her first sketch of him. An incredible insight into their creative yes. process and partnership. Protect Goose, proud son of their artistic bond. Please protect Goose. Please protect Frendo. They've done nothing to hurt anyone. Just allow them to live peacefully. Please. Number six. <laughs> Undoubtedly, Goose would be a merchandising sensation if Saga ever hit the screen as a movie 
or TV adaption. But since Saga's 2012 launch, BKV has been quite firm in the George R. R. Martin, I'm making something that cannot be adapted camp. As he said as recently as 2018 in a chat with Vulture's Abraham Riesman before Saga's most recent final pre-hiatus arc. Quote, for me, comics have always been the destination, not a stepping stone to get somewhere else. This has not, of course, quieted the calls for turning Saga into a film or show. One of the more notable calls, Tessa Thompson, saying in 2017 that she's, quote, obsessed with Saga and hinting that she'd want to play Alana in the eventual film. Good casting right there, Alana. That would be dope, honestly. That really would. This would be a rated X movie. Oh, my God. (laughs) I honestly can't wait. The amount of sex in this comic, and it's so graphic, too. Oh, my God. There's like a 10-panel sequence on female ejaculation later on. Yeah. (laughs) I swear it's not pee. Marco, with with the iconic line, I'm quite familiar with female ejaculation. I'm glad he stopped short of saying, just ask Gwendolyn. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, Marco. Number seven. If Saga ever does become a film or a show, a show seems like the better home for it, who out there will piss everybody off by protesting it? We ask because (laughs) the epic has a long and storied history of would-be censorers coming after it. In 2014, Saga was one of the 10 books... (laughs) Of all the books that the American Library Association received the most complaints and ban requests. You should get a plaque or something for that. You should get like some kind of banner. (laughs) It should be an engraving of the orgy that Prince Robot imagines (laughs) when he's recounting his near-death experience to heist. According to the ALA, the reasons for the challenges included claims of, quote, anti-family, nudity, offensive language, sexually explicit, and unsuited for age group. Now, anti-family. If there's one thing it is not, is As anti-family. a claim against Saga. It's unbelievable. Is outrageous. It's outrageous. All the rest of it, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> that is a Fard's testicle-sized outrage. Fard! Number eight. Instead of sending a baseless screed to the ALA, how about sending some snail mail to Vaughn and Staples? The end of each saga issue includes a feature to be continued in which the saga creators answer your literal letters, as BKV says in the special edition of a TB continued at the end of book one. Quote, technology frightens and confuses me. But if you send your (laughs) questions to 4335 Van Nuys Boulevard, Suite 332 Sherman Oaks, California 91403. It's about five minutes from my apartment. You might get an answer in issue 55 when Saga returns from hiatus. The book one TBC features a truly incredible, really cool 38-page breakdown of their process for making Saga, which includes 12 steps. They are such an amazing insight into their process. So it's really cool. Number one, the arc. Number two, the cover. Number three, the plot. Number four, the script. Five thumbnails, six digital pencils and ink, seven backgrounds, eight colors, nine letters, 10 to be continued, 11 corrections, 12 Ship it off to the printers. Make sure to keep thumbing after step 12 for scans of Fiona's sketchbook. Yeah, Cram, you can see how the stock came to be. You'll love it. Jason. Yes. Life and podcasting is mostly just learning how to lose. But we still like to win, and we still like to honor the character or idea that rallied the troops, advanced the cause. And today, the winner of our open circuit casting call is... D. 
Oswald Heist. What a legend. And the per minute rate on this guy, unbelievable. Legendary. Unbelievable value above replacement. Sure, when Alana, Marco, and company first meet our dude, he's absolutely fucking hammered, borderline incoherent, wearing a bathrobe that's open to reveal his piss-stained <laughs> underwear. Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. Oh, God. Uh, but once he cleans up and gets back into board game playing shape, he is an inspiration and a gem. Truly. Heist is not just a pacifist in a war-torn galaxy. He's a master craftsman using the mightiest sword there is, the pen, of course, to subtly spread his message. And that message, buried in the pages of A Nighttime Smoke, reached Alana and then Marco, helping them find the courage to rebel against their war and the ingrained prejudice of their people in order to start a life together. D also knows how to work that D. Boy, does he? Uh, clearly quite... <laughs> busy love life would tell you he wins over Clara in one of the taller tasks in this series. She's just lost her husband, but he manages to win over her over in mere days. And of course, his interrogation with Prince Robot spawns the iconic line, the opposite of war is fucking. True wisdom. <laughs> True, True wisdom, wisdom from man. a great artist. <laughs> but Heist's quietest abode holds as much heart as steam. Yes. His son, Perone's tragic death is one of the series' many, many reminders of the cost of needless violence. His willingness to provide shelter and guidance to Hazel, Alana, Marco, Clara, and Isabel is an example of the impact that just being willing to extend a helping hand to somebody else can make. He took a gunshot in the knee and eventually a lethal lance through the eye to keep them safe, but his impact lasted long beyond his death. It's fitting that they found him in a lighthouse because what he taught them through his work and then in their brief time together helped light the defining path for their family. Shouts to Heist, now and always. Well, friends, we may not have been making an episode, but we were certainly making something. Just as we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, we hope that you enjoyed this week's episode and that you're staying healthy and safe. Please be safe. We will be back next week to chat about Sadva Book 2, which is Volumes 4 through 6, Issues 19 through 36. Until then, remember, the opposite of war is podcasting. Good morning. Fard will eat your souls and piss them out, Fard's anus. Okay, uh, Fard, calm down for a second. Fard will drop my cheesy testicles on you and crush you and suffocate you under my ball sack. Fard, calm down for a second. Have you seen a ghost around here? Fard, but very itchy.